Jeremiah 31, please, in your Bibles. We do find ourselves now in the most personal and most important portion of the book of Jeremiah. The nation of Babylon is coming. They are knocking at the door. Everything that the Lord through Jeremiah has warned about is nearing its eventuality. Also remember that at this time, Ezekiel is saying the same things by the river Kibar in a refugee camp outside of Babylon. So Ezekiel's saying it there to, to the, the two waves of captives that are already over there in Babylon. Jeremiah, excuse me, is saying it here in Israel. He's been saying it for a long time and it is coming to pass. Because of this, as we mentioned last week, and as is very typical of God's messages through the prophets, God has stopped his messages of judgment because the judgment has come. It's happening. And instead, he's transitioned almost exclusively to a message of restoration and of hope through repentance. Notice carefully what God does, uh, that, that God does not send the prophet to lecture Israel about what they should have done. God doesn't spend his time telling them for the next 70 years how bad they've been. For the next 70 years, God is telling them, repent, realign, so I can bring you home. Repent, realign, so I can give you mercy. It's a good reminder for us as parents. It's a good reminder for us as spouses that we don't need to spend our time reminding people of the problems that they've had in the past. It's a good good reminder for us as a church that our time is far better spent encouraging people toward what to do with their future. That's what God has been doing. That's what he'll continue to do. What's done is done. It's time to move on. It's time to move ahead. They've made their choices. They'll receive the fruit of their choices. Now they need to know just how much God loves them. They need to know that. And just how much God longs for their good. They need to know that too. This is what we saw last week. Indeed, we saw it even going back to chapters 28 and 29. This is what we see this week in a very, very potent way. Beginning in chapter 31, verse 1, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, At the time, at the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel when I went to cause him to rest. Now, our text begins with a very um, obvious transition at the same time, revealing a very strong link to Jeremiah 30, right? We might even be able to say that these two chapters should not be read apart from one another because Jeremiah 31 starts with such a strong connection to Jeremiah 30 at the same time, which means we need to know when Jeremiah 30 is taking place so we can know what at the same time is. Right? We're not talking about at the same time Jeremiah said this prophecy, saying at the same time as the prophecy of Jeremiah 30, the prophecy of Jeremiah 31 will take place. Well, if you recall from last time we were together, what we saw in Jeremiah 30 was that God was proclaiming a day that he called the day or the time of Jacob's trouble, a time of tremendous trouble, and that then Israel would be saved out of that trouble, that they would be regathered first from the north and then from all of the nations where they had been scattered. And we linked that quite strongly when we talked about the great day of the Lord in Zechariah and uh, when we talked about the day of the Lord in Revelation and when we talked about all of these different events, we linked it to the end times. We linked it to those last seven years, the, the 70th week of, uh, of Israel as spoken by Daniel. 
And God said, at that same time, that's, what we're, that's the context here, at that same time, after the great day of Jacob's trouble, all of the things of Jeremiah 31 are going to come to pass. God says that they will be his people, he will be their God, at that same time. This again echoes the promises of God in the last chapter, verse, uh, chapter 30, as well as in any number of other prophecies. Ezekiel 37, 27, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 8. We talked about those a little bit last week. So God states that Israel, called here the people which were left of the sword, found grace in the wilderness. Now, there's no question at what is being said. There's a great number of people that will fall by the sword, and those that don't fall by the sword that are sent into the wilderness will find grace. There's no question as to what he's saying. The real question is when. When is he talking about? When is it that God says the people left by the sword will find grace in the wilderness? Well, uh, as I read up on this a little bit, some actually take this all the way back to Exodus and the Exodus and the grace that the, the people found as they wandered in the wilderness. Well, the problem is uh, they, they, they never died, died by the sword in Exodus. There was never a threat by the sword. Uh, they fought some battles, obviously, with swords against Midianites and Amalekites and such, but there was no tremendous death. So that's not the time here that we're speaking of. Uh, many believe that, that this, the uh, message was contemporary. So those that died by the sword in Israel, because God has been saying since Jeremiah chapter 1, that they would die by sword and by famine and by pestilence, Right? And so they're saying, okay, those that die by the sword are going to die, and then those that don't die by the sword are going to be brought into the wilderness and will find grace there. And there's certainly some merit to that idea, as we do see that to some degree. We'll see that later when Jeremiah is one of that very small remnant who's not taken into Babylon, but who also doesn't die by the sword. And, and they end up actually going down to Egypt. Um, and so we'll, we'll see that a little bit. But it does not seem to be the best answer to this because we know that the mercy that they'll find, that those that didn't die by the sword, when God is emphasizing the mercy of those that don't die by the sword as it relates to these circumstances, he's already presented Babylon as that mercy, not the wilderness. He said, I'm bringing you into Babylon that I may do good to you in the latter end, right? That, that him bringing them into Babylon and then him restoring them in 70 years, that's his mercy. His focus isn't necessarily on those that end up in the wilderness, those few there. His focus is on Babylon and the mercy of captivity. So it seems most naturally then that our context lends itself between the transition here at that same time and this idea of the people that, that do not die by the sword finding grace in the wilderness to be this time after the time of Jacob's trouble. Recall in Matthew 24 that Jesus says that when, uh, when they see the abomination of desolation sitting in the holy place, Jesus said, flee into the wilderness because there they'd find mercy. There, those that did not die by the sword would find mercy. After the tremendous persecution of that time, there will be a grace extended to God's people in the wilderness, and they will be given rest. This makes the most sense, I believe, contextually. Makes the most sense to me based upon what we know of the end times, and I believe this is what he's talking about here. There is a lot of debate about that, though, 
And I would encourage you to look into it more if you are curious and would like to perhaps um, study that on your own. We continue then in verses three and four, and the Bible says this, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built. O virgin of Israel, thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Things are still a little confusing contextually here. If we carry over our context from verses 1 and 2, which naturally we should, and we believe that that context is after the time of Jacob's trouble, which I believe is the most reasonable, then we would understand here that the same that the, the same context is taking place. Well, then who is the me? The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Now, we'd be tempted to say, okay, Jeremiah is writing. Jeremiah says the Lord has appeared of old unto me. And, and, and then God has told Jeremiah how much God loves Jeremiah. Well, that would be fine, except that as we continue here, he says, therefore, out of, uh, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, Jeremiah? No. O virgin of Israel. So it's Israel speaking. And it's Israel who says, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. So this is Israel speaking. Only Israel's not saying that right now. Israel has rejected that right now. So once again, place yourself in the context. The time of Jacob's trouble, after the time of Jacob's trouble, there is a salvation uh, for the remnant who do not die by the sword in the wilderness. And at that time, in the very similar way that in Isaiah 53, as we consider the prophecies of Messiah, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's Israel. That's future Israel talking about that. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That's future Israel proclaiming that when he finally becomes their Messiah. We're looking at the same thing here. This is future Israel saying in those days, in those days where they find grace in the wilderness, in those days when the Lord restores them, in those days after the time of Jacob's trouble, at that same time, they will say, the Lord hath appeared unto me of old, saying, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Their message in that day, when they have found that grace, when they have been caused to rest, will be to acknowledge that God has always loved them, that God's love has never faltered from them, that that love was there from the days of old. They'll look back on Jeremiah. They'll read Jeremiah, which had, had to this point has been written some 2,500 years ago. They'll look back on, on Jeremiah. They can go all the way back to Deuteronomy, in fact, and say, the Lord has placed his love upon us. He has loved us with an everlasting love. And this, this is the theme of the chapter. Everything that we're going to talk about is seen in light of this. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. So we read in Deuteronomy, going all the way back to Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. God said this, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, the Lord 
brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chose to place his love upon you. He has loved you with an everlasting love. It's been, it's been there a long time. Of old it has been said. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> All the way back in Deuteronomy 7, we can find God say, I love you. In fact, Deuteronomy 4 says it too. Deuteronomy 4.37 says it as well. And for this reason, after the time of Jacob's trouble, God's loving kindness will draw them back to himself in faithfulness. God will rebuild them and they will rejoice together in the city of David over their God. It says that they'll restore the tabrets as a musical instrument of celebration as they then celebrate together and rejoice over God. Continuing in verses 5 through 7 of Jeremiah 31. Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. For thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish ye, praise ye and say, O Lord, save thy people the remnant of Israel. God looks forward to that time yet future, beyond that time of sorrow, into that time of grace, into that time of rest, into that time of restoration, when they will plant vines again upon the mountains of Samaria, when the people will call to one another, and it will not be the watchmen in Ephraim waiting for the armies of the north to come, which is what they were doing when Jeremiah was proclaiming this. They were watching for the the armies of Babylon to come over that hill and to, to overtake them. Instead, those watchmen in Ephraim will be standing up on the hills of Ephraim so that they can get a good enough perspective to call to as many people as possible and say, come, let us worship the Lord together. God's people will sing as the chief of the nations reflecting a time when all of their enemies are thrown down and God will have saved the remnant of Israel. Continuing in verses 8 and 9. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth and with them the blind and the lame, the woman with, her, with child and her that travaileth with child together, a great company shall return thither. They shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the, by the rivers of water in a straight way wherein they shall not stumble for I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. As we've studied any number of times now when the Bible speaks of Israel being brought from the captivity of the north it is generally speaking of Babylon. Now Babylon was not to the north of them right? Babylon was to the east of Israel. However, they would always come from the north because no one was going to cross that desert with an army. They would follow the Tigris and Euphrates rivers up the the Fertile Crescent, up the Mesopotamian Mesopotamian Valley, and then come down through Syria from the north, right? So that's that's what they're talking about generally when they speak of the north. But then we also see, as is common, God speaking of gathering Israel not just from the north, but then he says, from the coasts of the earth. Uh, Very similar statement to all the nations of the earth, right? That they would be scattered. So we see them regathered from Babylon in 70 years, but then they are scattered throughout the earth beginning in 70 AD, and that regathering is yet to fully take place. That's what we are looking at here. 
And God says, beyond just the nation of Israel, he particularly speaks of the blind, the lame, women with child, and women that travail with child together, speaking of those who are in need, and they will come to the Lord for healing. Notice that manner of their return. It says, they shall come with weeping and be led with supplications. They'll come in sorrow. They'll come in repentance. They'll come with a contrite heart. And when they do so, then God will lead them and God will lead them with supplications. He will lead them through answers, through listening, through guiding, through interaction, fellowship. The Bible says God will cause them to walk by rivers of water, will cause them to walk in the straight way. They will not stumble Israel will be his child. Ephraim, he says, his firstborn, as he was so many years ago. Verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And, and let, me, let, me just, let me just clarify that for a moment before we move on. Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph, right? Joseph received that birthright. He received the double portion. One portion was given to Ephraim. One portion was given to Manasseh. By giving to Joseph that birthright, by giving to him that double portion... Joseph was considered the firstborn, except the portion was not given to Joseph. The portion was given to Ephraim and Manasseh. And if you recall, of those two sons, Manasseh was the elder. But when Jacob blessed those two, he placed his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. And when Joseph saw it, he said, no, uh, 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 he said, no, no father, don't do that. This is the eldest. And, and, and Israel says, I know that, but Ephraim will be the greater, which is why Ephraim is called the firstborn. Because Joseph received the birthright, Ephraim was the greater of the two, Ephraim is my firstborn. Okay, now we move on. Verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. And I will satiate the souls of the priests with fatness and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. Verse 10 speaks of the one who scattered Israel, gathering her. God is the one who will scatter her. And God says, I will scatter you, but I will also regather you. I will scatter you and you will go out in mourning and you will spend a time in mourning and you will come back and then I will regather you. Because God has redeemed Jacob. Because God loved them with an everlasting love. To this end, all of these things, and indeed all that would come, the history of Israel to this date is a testimony of God's drawing of Israel to himself to cause them to repent and in doing so be able to give them the wealth of his goodness so that they will sorrow no more at all. So that in that day, the priests, the Bible says, the soul of the priest will be satiated. The idea of satisfaction there as we see in the next phrase and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. 
God's people will be satisfied with his goodness. Now, the tone changes dramatically, beginning in verse 15. We have seen all of these promises of God's goodness, of God's love, of his everlasting love, of him drawing them back. In verse 15 through 17, we read this. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children. Because they were not. Thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of of the enemy. And there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. So God speaks of a voice in Ramah. The word Ramah is a Hebrew word that means hill. There are four locations in Israel that were called at one time or another Ramah. God speaks of a lamentation in the hills of Israel, and he speaks of Rachel, which would also be Rachel, weeping for her children. Rachel's children were Joseph and Benjamin. That would be Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Thus the weeping is coming from one or more of those tribes. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin inhabited the hill country north and west of Jerusalem, in Israel, and Rachel is weeping because the Bible says her children were not. They were destroyed, they were perished. We know the link here to Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. In that passage, which Matthew says to be a fulfillment, at least in part, of Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Joseph and Mary fled down to Egypt with the child, Jesus, because they, Joseph saw in a dream and was told to do so. Herod, when he realized he was mocked of the wise men, sent and commanded that all the children in the region, two years old and down, would be killed. And so we see a fulfillment of this prophecy of Rachel weeping for her children as the people in that region, many of whom would have been Benjamites, many of whom certainly of Ephraim, but particularly of Benjamin. As we know, Joseph and Benjamin maintained the connection to Judah, and they would have been in that area strongly. So God speaks of this sorrow. And it's possible that, this, that, that the, the fulfillment of this reality in the days of Christ was but a first fulfillment, a near fulfillment of a farther one, a a dual fulfillment idea that we see so many times in prophecy where there's a near fulfillment that that gives way to a far fulfillment in the end times. And it's quite possible that we're seeing another one of those here as it relates to this great sorrow. Why do we believe that that's quite possible? Because in our context, we're talking about at the same time as the days after the time of Jacob's sorrow, right? Around that time. And so Jeremiah is perhaps looking ahead to seeing those hills and one of those being that that absolute fulfillment during the time of Jacob's trouble just before the regathering. So God speaks of this sorrow, but again, he speaks of it in the shadow of this great hope that their work would be rewarded, that the days of laughter and joy would come. Very much as we sang this evening, the sands of time are sinking. Speaking dark, dark may be the midnight, but day spring is at hand. 
That's the message. God says in verse 17, their hope is in their end. And there is hope in that end. There are still many days of suffering left in Israel. But those who saw with eyes of faith, indeed those who yet see with eyes of faith, see God's restoration in the latter end. Continuing in verses 18 through 26, we're going to read a, a pretty big chunk here. The Bible says, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Set thee upon waymarks, make thee high heaps, set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again unto these thy cities. How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth, a woman shall compass a man. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof, when I shall bring again their captivity. The Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness, and there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all the cities thereof together husbandmen and they that go forth with flocks. For I have satiated my weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Upon this I awaked and beheld, and my sleep was sweet to me. Through 20 verses in Jeremiah 31, we perhaps see a strong trend, a back and forth whereby God is reflecting to Israel their rebellion and their shame. And he is reflecting to Israel of a time when they will finally relent, when they will finally give in, as we read through these verses in, in verses 18 through 26. Ephraim said, beginning in verse 18, Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, looking at a time when they actually receive this chastisement of the Lord. Back and forth, he asks in verse 20, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? He recalls upon those times where they were trouble to him. He calls them in verse 22, a backsliding daughter. But all of this is contrasted with God's desire and expectation of mercy in time to come. And this, of course, is the point, right? The nation is weary of sorrow and loss. They're not quite weary enough to humble themselves just yet. To this day, we've not seen them quite weary enough to humble themselves just yet. Now, this is not uncommon among humans. We are a stubborn lot, aren't we? It is common among us to struggle with yielding even when we know something to be right until we are worn down, until we are broken down, until we have simply no more strength to resist. I was uh, struggling in such a way with my youngest son just the other day. He was having quite an episode of a fit 
and he was struggling so hard to resist against the will of his father, and he did not yield his will until such time as all of his strength was gone, at which point he finally yielded his will. If we knew what was good for us, we wouldn't have to do that, right? If we knew what was good for us, we would have given in to God a long time ago. But we're stubborn. We're proud. We'll give God some, but not all. We will attempt to compromise with the God of all flesh, giving him a little, but keeping much more. God doesn't work this way. He's patient, and in his love, he continues to allow us to weary ourselves through rebellion. But at the end of the day, God wins. One way or another, God wins. So why weary yourself, Israel? Why weary yourself, Christian? And once we finally give up and give in, then he is there to love us and to hold us and to tend our wounds. And then he is able to bless us as he desired to do at the beginning because we finally yielded to him. And then we look back and we say, why didn't I do this from the beginning? What was I afraid of? What was I struggling against so strongly? Because I was actually working against myself. I was working against my best good. I was working against the very thing that I was working against my own blessing. But we're stubborn. This is what we do. Israel, that, that, that's the description here. That's what's happening here. Verses 27 to 30. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow in the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, that's what God has to do to break their will. So will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. God cites two characteristics of the coming age in these four verses. First, God tells them that the days are coming when the house of Judah and of Israel will again be repopulated, uh, not just of people, but, but of animals. When God, who has torn them down, who has broken them down as the just consequence of their evil and their sin, will then build them up and watch over them for good. Second, God tells them that in that day, the nation will no longer give a, a, an adage, a saying, a proverb. And the proverb is that the fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge. Rather, every man will bear his own iniquity. Now, God is not saying here that this is not how it's working at that time and it's going to work that way later. And we know that God's not saying that here because of Ezekiel 18. And in Ezekiel 18, God begins that that chapter by saying, what is this saying of yours? That the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. He, and, he, and he makes it quite clear that's not how this works. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Every man shall bear his own iniquity. The idea behind the saying that the father has eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge, is that the fathers sinned against God, the fathers set up idols, the father pursued rebellion, and the children are the ones that are suffering for it. Now, we all recognize that there are no actions among closely connected people that are completely unaffected by one another, right? We, we, we can admit that. 
There's little doubt that my decisions, my sins, my faith, my diligence, my laziness, all of these things will affect my children in some way. There's little doubt of that. The problem is not that we see this and that we know this to be true. The problem is when people thus seek to blame others for their own actions. I may not have very much faith, but once my children can open the Bible, read it for themselves, and the Spirit of God commends to their heart the fact that their father does not have much faith, they now have no excuse to have that little faith themselves. No excuse anymore. The fathers in Israel may have set a very bad precedent as it relates to obedience to God. But the moment God sent a prophet to call the children unto obedience and that prophet was ignored, it's no longer the father's problem. It's, it's the children's problem because a prophet has come to them. Now, they may have been predisposed to ignore that prophet because of their fathers. They may have had a precedent of ignoring and killing prophets because of their fathers. But the day that the prophet came to them was the day that the Lord spoke to them was the day that they chose to rebel. And so the, the, that, that proverb that the fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge does not apply any longer. And this leads us to the heart of the passage, which won't actually be the focus of our time this week. We're, we're expositing it this week. We'll focus significantly more on it next week. Verses 31 and 32, the Bible says this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which, was, which my covenant they break, Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. We'll continue there in a moment. In the context of this, time after Jacob's trouble, right? That's our context. The same time. Same time as Jeremiah 30. In that time, God says he will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He states that it will not be like that old covenant, which he made with them when their fathers were brought out of the land of Egypt. That would be the Mosaic Covenant, right? That would be the law, the Mosaic Covenant. And God makes it clear that they broke that covenant. That though God did everything he had promised, though God was the husband to them that he promised to be, he says, you all miserably broke that covenant. In every generation, they broke that covenant. The nation of Israel time and time again broke it. And to be clear, we're talking about that law of Moses the number of blessings and the cursings that came with it, the, uh, that, that, that uh, they would obey the expectations of the Lord and be blessed, or they disobey and be cursed. In Exodus 20, God, by His very voice, gave them the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 24, Moses took the blood of an oxen and he sprinkled it over the people to ratify their entrance into the covenant. They willingly, joyfully entered into that covenant and said, all that the Lord had said, we will do. God says, the new covenant covenant's not going to be like that. This new covenant will be different. That was an external covenant. That had external demands. May I say it this way? That covenant had demands on, on the people. And, and they made it very clear that a covenant, that a two-way covenant wasn't going to cut it. A covenant that demanded in any way on the actions of humans wasn't going to cut it. So we read in verses 33 and 34. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel 
After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them saith the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more notice how God centric this new covenant is notice how it's all on God's shoulders here I, 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 God says, I will do this. I will do that. I will make the new covenant. I will put my law into their inward parts. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. They shall all know me. God promises in this new covenant that he would make with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, after the time of Jacob's troubles, that he would put his law in their hearts rather than just putting it into their ears that he would write it on their hearts, cause them to want to do the things that God has asked them to do. He will be their people. They will be his God. They will be, for the first time among the nation of Israel, in a covenant with God, a truly mutual relationship between them, where the nation desires to love and serve God as much as God desires them to love him. And where the nation is capable of bringing it to pass, not because of anything they're doing, but because God says, because of what I will do for you. In that day, God says, no one will have to teach his neighbors to know the Lord because they all will know the Lord from the least unto the greatest because their iniquity will be forgiven. Their sins will be remembered no more. Their sin will be done. It will be gone. It will be removed. Now, as we talk through this, we know what the new covenant is. The new covenant was established through Jesus Christ. It is salvation by grace through faith. Next week, we're going to talk about the new covenant and we'll talk through all of what it means for us. I'm not actually in this series going to get into a discussion or into the teaching on all of the covenants. It would perhaps be a good time to bubble it up. Uh, And if the Lord leads, I might do it after next week. But as of now, I don't have an intention to do that. I did preach on it in 2 Samuel 7. So if you would like to go back to 2 Samuel 7, uh, I preached a two-part message on the covenants, and you can bubble up your, your understanding of that, or I might effectively re-preach those sermons in the weeks to come if I feel uh, it necessary. But for now, I don't intend to do that. But we know that this new covenant is salvation. That whereas the Mosaic covenant, one of the five major covenants and the only one of the five major covenants that God had established that was conditional in Israel. The only one that had conditions for man placed upon it, which is do these things and I'll bless you. Don't do these things and I'll curse you. And man failed. And so this new covenant that would supersede the Mosaic covenant, that would abolish the Mosaic covenant, that would, may I use the word Jesus used, fulfill the Mosaic covenant. That this new covenant would be fundamentally different, God says. And the most fundamental difference of this new covenant is that it's not us that has to do anything. It's God that does the work. It's God that gives us the new heart. It's God that places within us both the will, uh, it's God that works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The new covenant is, has no condition upon man for entrance. And this is salvation. 
Now, this new covenant will not be established with the nation of Israel, the Bible says, in full, the whole nation, wholesale, until after the time of Jacob's trouble. This corresponds with all of the other passages of Scripture we've learned about as it relates to the end times, as it relates to the nation of Israel. In fact, that's the whole point of the time of Jacob's trouble, is to bring Israel back to God. But notice, and, and, and notice that, notice that context. God is going out of his way to restore Israel, going out of his way to bring them back from the sorrows of their own making. The new covenant will be the fullest expression of God's declaration to the nation. Remember our context in Jeremiah 31. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. God's not forgotten about them. The new covenant is the deepest expression of God's love for his people. God then goes on to express the immense surety of his promises. Look what he says in verses 35 and 36. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from, me, from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. God says, if the sun and the moon and the stars fall, if they stop listening to me, if they stop obeying me, then Israel will cease to be a nation. If, if the entire creation is capable of rebelling against its creator, sure, then Israel will cease to be a nation. In other words, God's saying it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. The seas will not be able to rebel against God. The stars and the moon and the sun will not rebel against their creator. When the sun gets turned up high and then put down low, that's God doing that, right? That's not rebellion. When the stars begin to fall from the heavens, that's God doing that. That's not rebellion. What God is saying here is, when these things are out of my control, then you can say Israel is not my people. Then you can say I will abandon them. And, and by the way, these things will never be out of God's control. He says, uh, he uses a second picture in verse 37. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. If you can measure the heavens, which scientists say is constantly expanding, which make it kind of hard to measure. All right. And if you can search out the very foundations of the earth, they figured out like what? The first few miles of the earth's crust. They have no idea what's in the center. They never will. God says, then I'll cast off the seed of Israel. That's never going to happen never going to happen. Both of these illustrations are intended to settle firmly in the minds of the hearers that there are no circumstances under which God will ever cast off his people. Why? Because he has loved them with an everlasting love. The text finishes in verses 38 to 40. Behold, the days come. We're still on that days coming. Right? That's, that's prophetic invocation. Saith the Lord that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower of Hananiel unto the gate of the corner and the measuring line shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill Garib and shall compass about to go at and the whole valley of dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields unto the brook of Kidron unto the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy unto the Lord. It shall not be plucked up nor thrown down any more. 
forever. So God once more invokes that statement, the days come, speaking of the days following the time of Jacob's trouble, speaking of that time in the latter end. In those days, God says, the city shall be built to the Lord. And he speaks of all of these different corners and these different gates. The uh, Tower of Hananiel to the gate of the corner would probably be the entire north-south wall. And then from Gareb to Goath would span the east-west wall. And so we have the idea of all the walls, everything, right, will be holy unto the Lord. Everything within the span of the cities, even the dead bodies that are buried in the ashes in the city itself will be holy because the city will be holy. And in this time, it will never be brought down again because they're God's people and God is their God and they are God's people when they receive this new covenant given by God to a nation that he loves with an everlasting love. Let's apply two points of application this evening. Number one, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God could not have made it more clear just how much he loves his nation, the nation of Israel. God could not have made it more clear that he still has a plan for them in the future. And we don't just see this in the prophets. We find this in the New Testament as well. In fact, the New Testament forms the basis of the words for my first point. If those words sound familiar, we find them in Romans chapter 11. And in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, uh, Paul writes this, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Who are the people that God foreknew? That's the nation of Israel. And Paul makes it very clear here that he's speaking of the physical nation. How? He says, I'm of the seed of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, right? So he makes it very, very clear here that he's speaking of a physical genealogy. He's speaking of the the people. And then as he says, as he invokes Israel, Abraham, and Benjamin, he says, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Paul goes on then to quote a number of Old Testament passages to reflect this truth. First, that in every generation there is a remnant of the nation of Israel that is right with God through aligning themselves with the new covenant of grace. And we'll speak about this again next week. We find Paul speak of that in verses 2 through 6. Second, that Israel's time of blindness to the new covenant was expected and designed. It was expected by God that God would initiate the new covenant in Christ's blood and that Israel would reject it. Now, it was offered genuinely, but God knew in his foreknowledge and in his wisdom that they would reject it. So it was expected by God and designed by God to be the means, Romans 11, verses 7 through 10, to be the means by which the Gentile world is then able to come to God by faith. The rejection of the Messiah by Israel, the rejection of the new covenant, didn't stop the new covenant from happening and thus opened up the new covenant to the Gentile world, that all may come in. This is God's plan. This is God's design. And third, that Israel's blindness is only temporary, verses 11 through 32, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Paul says this clearly. And that God has not abandoned the nation of Israel, has not abandoned his promises to them, has not abandoned his plan for them. 
We'll read a part of this in verses 26 through 29 of Romans 11. Paul says, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. That would be Israel. But as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Here Paul quotes primarily from Isaiah 59, verse 20, but he also speaks of the covenant in which he will take away their sins. This invokes both Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 18. This does not mean, and let's let's be careful to establish what this does and does not mean. This does not mean, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, that every, every Jew is saved. Because the Bible says all Israel shall be saved, this does not mean that every Israelite of every generation is saved, is going to heaven. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Every Jew that does not confess that Jesus Christ is risen... Every Jew that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, every Jew that does not confess that Jesus is their Messiah is not going to heaven. The Bible makes that clear. Every Jew that confesses that Jesus Christ is their Messiah is saved by grace through faith and is ushered into the election of the church. When Paul says all Israel shall be saved, he is not saying that every generation of Israelites will be saved. Rather, Paul is saying the same thing that God said in Jeremiah 31, that there is coming a generation that will come out of the time of Jacob's trouble, and those that do not die by the sword will find grace in the wilderness, and at that time, after the time of Jacob's trouble, the nation will wholesale turn to Jesus as their Messiah. When the Bible says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him, they will know him, they will believe him because they have been through the very worst and the only thing that will save them is God. The great messianic declarations of Isaiah 53 will be fulfilled. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That's Israel saying this is how we saw him when he came. This is who he was to us at first. Now we acknowledge that he has borne our sorrows. Now we acknowledge he has carried our sins in his flesh. That's that's the nation of Israel declaring their faith in Christ. It's coming one day. As Zechariah 12.10 says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him, and they will believe, and then they will enter into the new covenant, the same covenant that you and I are in right now. Because the gifts of God, the calling of God, when God makes a promise, he does not turn back. That's what it means that it's without repentance. To repent means to turn back from or to turn from or to change one's mind about. God does not do that. God does not make promises and then renege them. If God says it, you can trust it. Second point. God has loved his people with an everlasting love. 
He has set his love upon them. That's not going anywhere. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. The second point here, Israel's spiritual future is our spiritual present. The new covenant is something that Israel will one day experience in full. Any person of Jewish descent can experience it right now by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and enter into the church. But there's coming a day after the time of Jacob's trouble when the nation will wholesale return and accept their Messiah. And as we consider that new covenant, consider some of the the ways that God describes it as we've already talked about. Verse 2, they'll find grace. Verse 2, they will be caused to rest. Verse 12, they shall not sorrow anymore at all. Verse 13, God will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them. Verse 14, God will satiate the souls of the priests and his people will be satisfied with his goodness. Now, all of this is their future for one reason and one reason only, because they'll enter into the new covenant. Because God has loved them with an everlasting love. God has a new covenant. And in the days of that new covenant, he will satiate them with his goodness. He will satisfy them. They will will have all and abound. Because they will have that new heart. They will have God's law written on that heart. And in this we rejoice, not just for the sake of the nation of Israel one day when they come into the covenant, but we rejoice because this is already us. We rejoice because that new heart that was promised to them one day, it's already yours if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because that comfort that God has promised to comfort them with one day is the comfort that that the whole New Testament tells us to live in through Christ. These concepts, grace, rest, joy, comfort, satisfaction with God's goodness, that's Israel's tomorrow, but that's us today. That's our today. Just this evening, we have once again memorialized what Jesus called the New Testament or the New Covenant in His blood. And as we declared together our faith in what Jesus did on the cross, we can also rejoice together in that all of those things that God has described here in Jeremiah 31 that they shall know me, I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. I will give them peace and joy and rest and comfort. It's yours. It's yours. Now again, we'll talk more about the implications of the new covenant next week. But if these blessings can be ours, then guess what? You know that everlasting love that God has placed on Israel? If the new covenant is the fullest expression of that everlasting love, then guess who else God has placed his everlasting love upon? Us. So that when we read, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, if you've entered into that new covenant by grace through faith, those words are just as much yours as they are Israel's. Because you are living in the fullest expression of those words. You are living in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. That's you. That's that's your birthright in Christ. 
We are co-recipients of that message of God in Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. The loving hand of God reached out into the sinfulness of your heart and called you into a personal relationship with him. And the question that, that, that is asked then, naturally, is, is that you? God has loved you. God has laid out salvation for you. Have you accepted it? Is it yours? Not simply then have you come into that relationship. And if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, do you understand His love? Do you understand the separation that you have with His love right now? Would you come into that love? Would you accept Him this evening? But for we who are believers, not only do we, do we say, well, have I come into this relationship? Your answer to that is yeah, yes. But then the question is, is this how you perceive your relationship with Christ? Is this how you see it? Is God just that angry taskmaster who's constantly uh, looking behind you, ready to get angry with you and punish you? Is God just that far away person who wound it all up and then seems to have just left it all behind? Is God that man who hides himself from you, who says, I want to bless you, but then he's never to be found? You can't find him? Or do you understand God? And all of those are misperceptions, by the way. Or do you understand God to be who he is? Do you understand what it means that you are a partaker in the New Testament of his blood? When, when we partake together in this remembrance of him, it's not a small matter. It's not just something that you, you tack on to your current life and experiences. God is your God. And you are his child. He has placed his law within your heart. He has worked within you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He has borne out the fruit of his Holy Spirit in you, if indeed you are in Christ. He has begun a good work, which he will continue in you until the day of redemption. And this perspective overshadows everything in our lives so that those words that God used to speak of the new covenant in the days that Israel will receive it, grace, Rest, no more sorrow, joy, comfort, satisfaction in God's goodness. Those are yours in Christ through the Spirit of God if you're rightly related to Him. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? Life is full of difficulties, is it not? His life is not easy. God never promised it would be. Not to the believer, not to anyone. Temptations unto sin, they're everywhere. Trials of our faith. Weaknesses of our body and of our mind. We want to read more. We want to memorize more. We want to know him more. We want to do more, but we're weak. Sickness, death, pain, loss, tough days, busy days. Fearful things, busy things. But no matter what your day might look like today, 
no matter what your week to come might look like, no matter what that week might have to offer you, whether for good or for ill, no matter what you will or won't have. Jeremiah 31.3 tells us God has loved you with an everlasting love. God has shed that love abroad in your hearts if you've accepted him by grace through faith. And that's something to be glad about. And this is the note I want to end on this evening. Next week, we'll talk more about the new covenant. This week, we dwell upon that statement of God into which we have been born again and let us never forget it. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.